Tonight's scripture reading will be 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Again, that's 1 John 3, verses 14 through 18. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. <clears throat> I was in my first local work as a uh, associate minister right out of preaching school, and I just finished a adult Bible class that was um, on the rich young ruler. And as I completed that uh, that Bible class. I noticed there was a gentleman who was a regular member there at that place where I was, and he was standing in the back. And this member had already gained sort of notoriety, and I, I knew that there were members that uh, uh, had talked about him, and, and whenever they did, it kind of was kind of like there was an eye roll with it because they knew that there were things that accompanied his behavior and his personality that were, well, to put it mildly, a little abrasive. And as I was exiting out the Bible class, and uh, he stopped me, pulled me over, and he said, Andy, I have a question for you. And I girded up my loins just a little bit, and I said, okay, ask your question. He said, why did the rich young ruler go away from Jesus? And I said, well, it was because, and he went, ah. As I was beginning to give my lesson or my, my, the defense based upon what I'd read in Scripture, he cut it off with the buzzer sound that I guess you get from any of those game shows from the 70s. But anyway, that was his choice to do that. And he went on and, and, and put me in my place, so to speak, about why it was that I had no clue why it was that the rich young ruler went away from Jesus. That was a difficult situation to face. That was a difficult pill to swallow because I knew that, well, that wasn't necessarily Christian behavior. That wasn't loving and that wasn't concerning or that wasn't uh, somebody being gentle with somebody else. And I don't know if that was just my first real wake-up call as to far that Sometimes people just don't behave like they ought to. But we're going to begin this evening just a random, well, not a random, but a uh, periodic series on um, this asking for a friend, uh, otherwise known as uh, you've asked for it, you've got it. And the very first one I want to deal with is this question right here. And realizing that there are people sometimes that come into our lives and we ask the question, how do you love those people that are hard to love? How do you love those people that are hard to love? Because I know that there are people that have asked that question, and especially you would understand that there's difficult people that you're going to have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Some people that are just simply cruel or pessimistic or prideful or nitpicky or judgmental or, 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 um, or uh, condescending or maybe critical or, or uh, gossiping. What's harder to deal with, I think, in some respects is when we talk about how you deal with people like that in the church. How do you deal with the people that are members of the body of Christ that are 
well, cruel and pessimistic and prideful and nitpicky and judgmental and, and, and gossiping and controlling whenever it is that you understand that these people ought to know better and we ought to know better. And sometimes we observe the Passover with those people. That is, I would just much rather sit on the opposite side of the auditorium or sit uh, somewhere where I know that I won't encounter that person and then bug out before it is that they, well, they come and become cruel or pessimistic or prideful or judgmental or nitpicking or gossiping or controlling. But is that really what God wants us to do? Is that really the way God wants us to behave? There are a couple of truths that I want you to understand this evening. The first thing is, as long as there are people, there's going to be problems. That's the truth of the matter. As long as there's people that are involved, there's going to be problems. Yes, the church is a perfect institution because Christ planned it that way, because God planned it that way, but the church is full of imperfect people, and sometimes we all, all of us, don't behave like we ought to. We don't always talk the way that we ought to. We don't always behave the way that we ought to with one another. We're difficult to love sometimes. But here's the second truth I want you to consider as we begin this evening. God's grace is there to ensure that if we're all striving together as one body with one mind, as the book of Philippians talks about, it ought to be that we're bearing with one another in love. That is, God's grace can cover us whenever it is that we come into difficult situations or encounter difficult people, people that are cruel and <laughs> pessimistic and prideful and nitpicking and judgmental and gossiping and controlling. There, God gives us ways that we can deal with that. If you're still open there to the book of thir uh, first, first John chapter 3, I want you to notice a couple of things before we draw some applications about this. About what John has to say whenever it is that we encounter somebody that really just wants to try and put us in our place or somebody that wants to tell us something for our good or somebody that wants to try and, well, we know that when they, we see them coming, it's not necessarily going to be something that's positive. How do we deal with somebody like that? You say there's a difference between coming and talking to somebody for the difference of wanting to praise and encourage versus wanting to come and criticize and wanting to, again, try and put somebody in their place, so to speak. A couple things from 3 John, from the passage Daniel so aptly read this evening that we need to consider as we begin this uh, tonight. Number one, John says, as he's dealing with this assurance, this Christian assurance, we know occurs a number of times throughout the book of 1 John, and all the way through, it's John reassuring these Christians about what they believed and what they bought into with Christianity and how it is that they know they ought to behave. Here's the first thing. <coughs> John says, 1 John chapter 3, we are born of God into a new life and a new family. Note what he's going to say, beginning there in verse 14. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life. We know, again, the word knowledge, know, is, occurs again and again and again throughout John. This is a different type of knowledge than what he's usually giving. This knowledge that he talks about is an intellectual knowledge. I can know something intuitively. I can understand there's a principle at work under here. And that's the word he uses for this knowledge. For example, I can go out and I can know that as I get on this airplane to head towards wherever it is I'm going, that there are principles in work and the more speed that plane picks up on the runway, 
the more lift is created underneath the wings to the point where that plane, as heavy as it is and as crazy as it imagines, as I imagine it, lifts up off the ground and is able to get me from, well, Houston, Texas to Denver, Colorado or wherever it is that we're going. I know that intellectually. However, there's an experiential knowledge to say, I wouldn't know the first thing about flying a plane, about how to actually build that plane in the experience. This is the intellectual knowledge he's talking about. We have this intuitive, this understanding that we have passed from death to life. That is positional. I was once over here in death. And now I am over here in this new life. How did that happen? That happened by the grace of God. That happened, according to John, by how he refers to being born of God. Note how he uses that term. Jump back up to chapter 2 and verse 29. Or excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 9, rather. Chapter 3 and verse 9, note what he says. Whoever has been born of God, read from our verse 14, who's passed from death into life. Whoever's been born of God does not sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot, that is, continue to commit sin. Because he has been, there it is again, born of God. We passed from death to life. We've been born of God. Jump back to chapter 2 and verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. All right, let's connect the dots here just a moment. We've had this change. We passed from death into life. We've been born of God. How does that look? That means that I cannot continue to practice sin. And if I've been born of God, I must practice righteousness. That is being in step with God, doing the things that God is pleased with. God has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13. We pass from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're no longer in darkness. We're now in light. We've been born of God. We are different. We're different. But note the word he's going to use now based upon this. Connect the dots there. Verse 10 leaving a lifestyle of sin, practicing righteousness. Verse 10 says, in this, the children of God. You see, we're children of God, but we're also a family of God. We've been born of God, and we're all put together in this same family that he's created for us. That's the first principle we need to understand. The second one is this. Loving others is evidence of us being born of God. It's evidence of us being born of God. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We know we pass from death to life. There's a change in us because why? We love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has an eternal life in him. You jump back up to the verse we mentioned just a moment ago in verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness does not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. He that doesn't love his brother abides, that is, remains in death. Whoever hates his brother, verse 15, is a murderer. Word hate. Whoever behaves hatefully towards that person. 
whoever has hatred for his brother, whoever detests his brother, whoever detests him to the point of persecuting his brother, he's not born of God, he abides in death. He's a murderer, a manslayer, a killer of men. There are assassins, manslayers among us, people that recklessly put people's lives and their spiritual well-being at the back so it is that they can advance their agenda. Oh, the devil, the Bible says in John 8, 44, that's a good verse to write, cross-reference, John 8, 34, devil was one of these. Jesus talking to those Jews on that occasion said, the devil, you're the father of the devil. He was a liar and a murderer. Same word from the very beginning. There are people that are hard to love because they're not behaving with love. You ever notice that when you have somebody that's coming to tell you something for your own good, it's seldom that they're going to tell you something good. It's usually that they're not going to tell you something for your own good, but they're going to tell you something bad. And when you find that there's people that are harshly critical and pessimistic and, and just really abrasive that you come and deal with, we look back to 1 John chapter 3 and we see that part of relationships and dealing with one another is realizing that we're all part of the family of God. We've all been born of God into this family, but evidence of that is being loving towards one another. Here's principle number three. Principle number three. We love others like God does when we learn to sacrifice like God does. Look on, look on in the context there. John says, by this we know love. All right? What do we know, John? We know love. How so? Well, how does that manifest itself? Because he laid down his life for us. I see that. I know Jesus laid down his life for me, that he did so so I could pass from death to life, so that I could be born into the family of God, so that I would no longer have to practice sin or continue in sin, but that I could practice righteousness all the way back to the very first point. I see that. But what does he say after that? And we also ought to love our lives for the brethren. I look at this verse and I think about soldiers going off to war and fighting and, and, and combat and fighting in battles. And we talk about those men that lay their life on the line. We talk about our police officers, our brave police officers that walk that thin blue line. They're laying down their life every single day. And I wonder if that, I understand that's probably a valid application, but I also wonder how much it is of all of us taking my will and my wants and my wishes and my preference and the things that I think about and laying that down for the good of the brethren. And thinking about dealing with somebody in humility, I've got to lay myself down and pick up Jesus Christ and see that brother and realize that they're a living soul, that they're somebody that matters in the eyes of God, and I've got to lay down my life and my preferences. I've got to behave meekly towards one another. The word meekness is not weakness. The word meekness is strength under control. It's strength grown tender. Yes, I may be able with my words to put you right in your place and to tell you exactly what I think of you, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to put myself under the yoke of Christ. I'm going to lay myself down, lay my life down to the point where I'm going to treat you as I would want to be treated. Matthew 7 and verse 12. I'm going to be kind and tender hearted towards you. I'm going to be long suffering with you. I'm going to bear with you in love. All those wonderful qualities there and putting on love, which is the bond of perfection. Colossians chapter 3. All of those things I'm going to do 
in laying my own life down. We want to love like God. And so we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, even that one that despises me. Well, in our example, in our example there from verse 16, talking about Jesus, did Jesus even die for the one that despised him? Did Jesus even lay down his life for the one that he knew would betray him? Did Jesus do that sacrificially, not because of the goodness of that person, but because it was what that person needed? And the answer is yes. So how ought I to behave towards one another? John goes on and says, He who has his good world's good, this material things, and shuts up his heart from his brother. I see my brother and my sister struggling, and I realize they haven't done me any good to one wit, and therefore I'm going to say, well, I'll let somebody else handle that. I know I've got the money. I know I've got the goods. I know I've got the things to be able to eat this person's burdens. But I'm not going to do that. He says, he that shuts up his heart from him, from his brother, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, John's tender, affectionate tone towards brothers and sisters and towards his children in the faith, as it were. He said, let's not love in word or tongue, but in deed or in truth. Indeed and in truth. It's one thing to say, I love everybody here. It's one thing to say, I love the church. It's another thing to say, I love this brother, even the one that has trouble behaving lovingly towards me. And it's another thing to show that love in a way that's going to lay down that life and speak to the good of that brother or sister. How do we love people that are hard to love? Three practical things in the, this evening, and the lesson's yours. Number one, what we've got to do is look at God's love for this person. Look at God's love for this person. How do we deal with them? First thing we've got to do is we've got to see God's love for this person. Who is he? Who is she? What do they do? What we're looking at is not what I see, but what God sees. That's the first characteristic that Jesus mentions there in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 about the people that are going to, be, uh, to, to, to have the kingdom of heaven. You remember that he said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You know what that is? That's literally seeing themselves as God sees them. Realizing like that sinner, that publican in Matthew or Luke 18 that beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But whenever I see other people like that and realize that God has love for that person, you're going to see them in a different light. What are you going to see? <laughs> what can you say good about this person? Well, there's not anything good. I'm nothing I can see. Well, let's start here. This is a person who God made in his own image. This is a person that bears the stamp of the eternal God. This is a person that bears the breath of life, that bears a living soul. And one day that soul is going to spend eternity somewhere. God created that, and God made that, and God put that in that person so that that person has got eternity in them. This is a person, number two, for whom Christ died. Christ died even for the ungodly, Romans chapter 5. Christ died for his enemies, John, uh, uh, Romans chapter 5. Christ died for the ones who were sinners and without strength, Romans chapter 5. And as Christ died for those people, is it really a small thing or is it really a big thing that I want to treat that person 
like Christ did? Is that what we're called to do and called to be? Well, we could see also, again, dealing with people that are hard to love within God's family is this is a person who's part of the family. Sad as it may be, you don't generally get to choose who's in your family. Your physical family, you don't generally get to choose who they are. Now, you can choose to disown them. You can choose to separate yourself from them. I know sometimes people have uh, falling outs with family, and so they don't see each other except maybe on the holidays. Even those are strained because uh, you're trying to walk on eggshells and not, uh, not broach the unbroachable topics and the difficult things. But brothers and sisters, if we're part of the family of God and we're all going to the same place and we're all worshiping the same God who wants us to love one another, according to what John says, is it really right that we can take a person and say, you know what, I'm just going to write you off. You get on my nerves, forget it. You never have anything good say to me. Rather than to try and cultivate that relationship because it's valuable, because God says it's valuable. Practically, how does that look? Sometimes, not casting any blame, not saying anything that I don't believe that, uh, that doesn't go on, but sometimes it is that we can start talking just as Christians. And sometimes we're sitting around a dinner table or sometimes we're sitting around a lunch table, we're visiting together, and next thing you know, somebody mentions something about brother, sister, so-and-so. Oh, I can't tell you how much they get on my nerves. And before too long, we're rehearsing all of the bad things that goes on based upon what brother, sister, so-and-so say or how they treat people or how they think about people or, or how it is that they're always got their nose in somebody else's business. That's not helpful. Now it is you're guilty of being gossip and really judgmental and nitpicky and you become all those things that you despise in brother, sister, so-and-so. Here's a rule. Before you're going to say one negative thing, say three positive things about brother, sister, so-and-so. Well, there's nothing positive about them. <laughs> really? Here's three positives just right now that I've given you. Before it is that you begin to point out all of the negative and all of the difficult and all of the, the things that really get on your nerves and grate on your nerves, stop for just a moment and think, is this really going to build up somebody? Is this really going to help draw this person or draw these people that I'm talking to closer to the heart of God? Or is this really going to tear down the body of Christ? We talked this morning about talking bad about brothers and sisters in 3 John. We don't want to do that because we don't want to be guilty of talking bad about another man's wife. That is Christ's. That is the church. We don't want to disparage the church for whom Jesus Christ died. How about praying for that person? How about stopping and thinking about them and realizing they're a soul that's valuable to God and saying, God, help this person to be more loving and to be more joyful and to take more joy in Christ more than being critical of somebody else or more than being nitpicky or judgmental or, or, or gossiping or any of those other things that we mentioned. God, help this person to show and to have the law of kindness on their lips. God be with this person because, you know what, I know that when a person's like that, it doesn't come from nowhere. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. We don't speak out of turn or out of that line with Scripture. We say, out of the abundance of the heart does the life act. A person that's going to behave that way has probably got some serious struggles or difficulties or fear or failures or challenges that are going on, and I need to take those things before the throne of God. God, help me to bear with this person because I can't imagine the difficult things that they're facing as a person. 
God, I can't imagine the challenges that are in their life. Maybe it's a difficult home life. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's uh, despair. Maybe these other things are crowding in, but it's coming out in this way that's antagonistic and really, in a lot of cases, unloving towards Christian brothers and sisters. God, bless that person and help them. God, help me to be a light to them and an encouragement to them in a way that maybe they so badly and desperately need. Remember, God loves this person. Number two, how do you love those who are hard to love? Look at your love for this person. How does it manifest itself? How does it show itself? I mentioned just a moment ago about how it is that we lay down our life. What does that look like? Flip over from your Bible, please, if you would, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is the beginning of the practical section of the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 12, Paul begins to, uh, to enunciate the things and the ways that these Christians ought to do. You see, the book of Romans is written to deal with a, what seems like a growing rift between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And as he's writing these things, he's talking about the ones that well, are really hard to get along with, just like what we're talking about this evening. And know what he's going to say. Number one, verse 12, or verse 14, rather, I want you to bless those who persecute you. Those that really try your patience, those that really want to try and uh, push all the right buttons, you need to turn around and you need to bless those people. Here's a challenge. Next time you deal with somebody that's difficult to deal with, be quicker with a blessing than they are with a criticism. Be quicker with something that's going to build them up than they are with something that's going to tear you down. You know what that's going to do? That's going to snap their minds out of this loop to say, I've got something I really need to tell old John Batchelder over here. And John comes up and he says, Andy, I really appreciate fill in the blank. Well, that kind of catches you off guard. That kind of snaps you out of this mindset. And before too long, you don't know, but your attitude is going to follow your thinking. Start off by a blessing. Number two, verse 17, jumping down in the context. Don't be overcome by evil. Don't repay evil for evil. Tendency is when somebody wants to hurt me, I want to hurt them back. Tendency is when somebody wants to get at me, I want to just jab them a little bit back. Maybe in a little passive-aggressive way. What if I just started messing with that person? What if I tried to just get under their skin or, or uh, get on their nerves? Paul says, don't do that. God says, don't do that. You have an obligation to love this person, to behave in a loving way towards this person. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You can couple that with verse 17, verse 21 there. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Consider their needs. Consider their needs. Verse 20, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you're going to heap burning coals of fire upon his head. I used to think that this was, yeah, he's going to get him. Oh, yeah, that's going to that's gonna really rev their engine. That's going to get him mad. They can't do anything because you've done something. That's not what this is about. This is about relighting and rekindling the love for God and the love for fellow man by providing something that they need. Verse 18 is always true. As much as it depends on you, Ultimately, I can't change the behavior of another person. Ultimately, I personally cannot change the heart of another person. But as much as it depends on me, I'm going to strive for 
loving that brother or sister. I'm going to strive from moving away from those things that, well, that are characteristic of somebody not abiding in God, and I want to do the things that are show that person that I love them and I care about them. No, brothers and sisters, that you can't do that if you have no contact with the person. The very person that maybe grates on your nerves and gets on your nerves and gets under your skin is perhaps the very person that you need to be cultivating that relationship with because that's a very good opportunity. That's a great opportunity for you to grow to be more Christ-like. That's an opportunity for you to grow in your faith and to grow to be a person that, well, is able to get along with everybody. I want to be known as that. I don't want to be a person that know that people look at and say, oh, you can't go and reason with Andy Baker. You can't go talk to him. He's just unreasonable. He's just nitpicky and, and gossipy and all those different things. I want to be a person that's known to just love everybody. You appreciate a person like that, right? Here's the beauty of God's plan. You can be that. I can be that. And God wants us to be that. Sometimes that may be is to love them enough to tell them the truth. With a lot of prayer, with a lot of rehearsing, spending time talking and maybe rehearsing with wife or husband and say, I really want to deal with this person and let them know how it is that they make me feel. Counselors say that you use a whole lot of I language. If you start saying, you do this and you do that, you do this and you do that, what you're doing is having a recipe for somebody shutting down. You don't want that. You want to let somebody know sincerely, this is how I feel when you talk to me like that. I want you to know that your words really hurt me and cut me. The actions that you've taken towards me are very, very unloving, and I just feel, I feel terrible about it. And I want to know how it is that I can help you. You know, somebody came to me like that, or if somebody came to me like that, I would appreciate that approach. And in humility and laying down my life for that brother or sister, I would be willing to listen and say, I'm sorry. That's biblical, brothers and sisters. That's Matthew chapter 18. You go to a brother that you have a problem with or a brother that sins against you, and it is that, that you want to talk to them and you want to try and win your brother and you want to try and help them to understand, and it is that God doesn't want us to just sever and write people off and, and, and cast them off. He wants us to be able to work things out like a family, like the family of God. Confrontation is hard, yes. But I've got to read through back through the Gospels and realize that every confrontation passage that you read Jesus having with the leaders of the Jews, all those Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and elders and lawyers and all those people Jesus dealt with, every single one of those occasions was loving. And every single one of those occasions where he had to really come down hard on them, it was for the good of those people that were cruel and pessimistic and, 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 and nitpicky and judgmental and gossipy and, and critical, harshly critical. He did that because he loved those people. He didn't just write them off. He gave them every opportunity to change their ways and change their hearts so that it was that they didn't have to suffer being separated from God's anointed. How much more do we need to be long-suffering with one another? Last one this evening. Look at God's love for you. Look at God's love for you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. Same book. John says, if we say we have no sin, 
We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I am foolish if I don't ever say I'm not hard to love. It's not hard to love me. Don't you know I'm always easy to get along with? I'm always exactly like I ought to be. I'm always uh, right on the mark with the word and right with the right words and right attitudes and right actions. This verse doesn't apply to me. John says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. We're not behaving like ourselves if it is that we look at ourselves and we say, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not hard to get along with. But it is, verse 10, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, if we say that we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If I look at myself and I say I've never been cruel or, or pessimistic or prideful or nitpicking or judgmental or gossiping and controlling, I'm not being honest. I make him a liar and the truth is not in me. Brothers and sisters, we're all not like we ought to be. But as I mentioned, the goal is that we're all trying to be more like Jesus. And here's the beauty of it. Is God's grace covers us as we continue to try and be that. Thank God for His grace and His mercy in my life and in your life. And I appreciate more and more every day that his grace is not based upon my goodness. It's not based upon your goodness. It's not based on how many hoops that I feel like I need to jump through. It's based upon his love for us. And it's almost like John is asking, is it really a small thing to say we need to love one another? We need to treat one another as Christ treated us. All of us need to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, more often. And all of us need to have more grace in our speech, in our actions, in our attitudes, so it may be that God's glorified in us and through us. Thank you for your attention this evening. Pull out your songbooks, open up to the song that Roger mentioned just a moment ago. Church. Maybe there's somebody here that's been struggling with difficulty or doubt or uh, difficult problems in life situations. We're here for you. We want you to know we love you. And we're going to pray for you. But if we know specific things to pray for, well, James would say the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's a whole lot better to have a focused prayer on one particular thing where you've got, I don't know, 180, 190 people here praying for one specific thing in your life and my life and really trying to focus the way that it is that we look at our sin and our difficulty and our problems and, and trying to help one another. We'd love to do that with you and for you. Maybe it is there's some here that have has never obeyed the gospel and you're ready to do that this evening. There is no greater family than the family of God. There is no greater grace than the grace that God has extended to us through Jesus Christ, and you can know that this evening as we stand and sing our invitation song.